If you're able, remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Acts chapter 4, starting verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12 as we take a break on our, of our first John series to consider a fruit of the 16th century Reformation. So here's the Word of God, Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your, you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us ear to hear what it says. For us in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are Protestants. We are not Roman Catholics. We are not Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians. We are Protestants for a particular reason. And we draw our heritage back to the 16th century Reformation and through them to the Apostolic Church. And having the courage to be a Protestant requires the courage to see Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. That's our goal for today, to see Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. Now, I'll define what that is in a moment. For now, I want to say that this is a concept that the Church of Jesus Christ struggles with perennially. We tend to be distracted from Christ. We tend to uh, find new things that uh, attract us instead of relying in the all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see that, that in this perennial struggle in the history that eventually left, led to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, so in the 1500s. By the time the 1500s arrived, the church had developed a complex system of sacraments, a complex system of rituals that were designed to complement Christ. And that's really a tendency of the human heart. 
we are okay with Christ as long as we can add something to him. We want to have some part in the eternal destiny of our souls. It's important for us to realize that in no period of the history of the church, she ever denied that faith in Christ was necessary for salvation. You can go back 2,000 years, and in no period of that, uh, that history, the church denied that faith in Christ was necessary for salvation. She did, however, deny that Jesus was the all-sufficient Savior. And most people are okay with Christ as long as they can add something to Him, as long as they can contribute something to, uh, to the um, salvation of their souls. Through the centuries, the church developed seven acts that apart, that apart from at least five of them, a Christian could not obtain salvation from God. So as, as the reformers arrived into, in the scene in the early 16th century, and some of these were actually officially accepted during the 16th century, the church had come up with this very convoluted system to help you help Christ. And included, uh, some of them the Bible taught, but they, they distorted it, distorted what the Bible taught, and some of them were just kind of made up on their own. They said that baptism was essential for the forgiveness of the original sin, and all sins the point of baptism. The bat- Once you're baptized, somehow every single sin you've committed was, to that point, was wiped clean, which led a lot of people to try to delay their baptism until they're dying uh, days. They also said that you need to be confirmed. That's another sacrament that allowed you to be to then participate in the Lord's Supper, which was the third sacrament, Eucharist. Um, that was necessary to partake often of the Eucharist or the Lord's table if you wanted to have any hope of heaven. Uh, at one point, it was said daily, then it was weekly. The current standard in the Roman Catholic Church is that you have to have uh, uh, communion at least once a year to keep the possibility of a heaven. Um, on the table for you. He also said that you need to do penance as the fourth sacrament. Uh, penance is the doing of particular activities prescribed by a priest following what's called a regular confession. That is that you actually have to go to a priest and you have to voice your sins to the priest and the priest uh, figure out what's the equitable punishment that you have to do on earth in order to, do, uh, to, to find forgiveness. Uh, temporal forgiveness from the Lord. Now, you've always, uh, through the years, as you've studied the Reformation, you, you, if you listen to lessons of the Reformation, you've heard of Luther and how what led him to nail those 95 theses on the door of the castle church was the idea, the, the selling of indulgences. Well, indulgence is a penance that you can buy. So you can say 10 Hail Marys and 100 uh, Our Fathers kneeling on raw corn kernels, or you can, for 100 bucks, buy this piece of paper that tells you that you've done that without you having to do it. That's what an indulgence is. They also said that um, in order to have a chance of going to heaven, you need to be anointed by a priest when you're sick. It used to be called extreme, extreme unction, because it was only given to people who were about to die, but too many of them were getting better after that, and it didn't look good for the church, for the priest to show up thinking that you're going to die, and then you don't, and then his credibility goes down the drain with that. 
And then holy orders, entry into the ministry in the Roman Catholic Church, or and then matrimonial, the seven sacraments, the seven rituals that are supposed to help you help Christ save you. If you wanted to keep the hope of heaven, you know, they didn't guarantee heaven. Most of us still going to go to purgatory, but at least it keeps the possibility of heaven open there. And these are all developed as additions to faith in Christ. But with time, they virtually replace faith in Christ in the practice of the common people. No longer Christ was important. What was important was chewing on that bread. No longer Christ was important, but what was important was getting that water in your head. No longer Christ was important. It was important that you did all these penances on your own. You know, though that was never the official practice to discard Christ, that was the practice of the people on the pews, and that's anachronism because up through the 16th century there were no pews in church. So the Reformation is what brought, brought chairs into churches. To, before then, people stood for the proclamation for the homilies, which were much shorter than after the Reformation time. So if you don't like long sermons, blame the Reformers. They were, the sermons were shorter prior to that time. But when the Reformers turned to the Scriptures, and they realized that the Scriptures alone are the ultimate rule of faith and practice, a doctrine that became known to us today as the sola scriptura, the Scriptures alone reveal salvation in Jesus Christ, they realized that the idea of a sacramental system was a devilish idea, and that salvation is in Christ alone. And that's really the doctrine that we wanted to look at today. What's became known as the solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone saves and nothing else. The moment you add something to Christ, you have nothing. Does it make sense? That's how the salvation math works. Christ plus nothing equals everything in your salvation. Christ plus something equals nothing in your salvation. Or to put it another way, Christ, Christ plus nothing equals heaven. Christ plus something equals hell. That's the mess that the scriptures give concerning our salvation. And the reformers just stated what the apostles taught. We see that here in our passage in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John healed a lame man in the temple. You know, the, the, he was healed and then he stood up and he, how does the little song goes? He walked and leaped Praising God, right? Walk and leap and praise, praising God, something like that. So this that happened in chapter 3. Uh, that led to a lot of attraction coming upon Peter and John. Peter preaches his second sermon, second recorded sermon. As a result of that, people get, got saved. And because that wasn't a good look for the leaders of the time, the religious leaders of the time, they... The disciples were arrested. You see that in verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 4. The Sanhedrin, which was the, 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 the collection of the religious leaders of the time, proceeded to try these men, Peter and John specifically, for the healing of the lame man in Jesus' name. You see that in verses 5 through 7 of our passage. And before we continue, it is important to note that the first century, first century Judaism had also added all kinds of performance requirements to faith in God 
to the point that faith in God was completely obithical. I knew I was going to have a trouble with this word. Was com- completely obfuscated, darkened, obfuscated, completely messed up. <laughs> in the point that you couldn't really find faith in Christ in their practice. So you can see that the apostles find themselves in the very same place as the reformers found themselves in the 16th century. They were in principle very much in line with the church of the 1500s. And why is that? Why do we find that repetition? Why We, we read this here in um, Acts. We, we read this in history. We read this prior in, uh, in the Old Testament as well. Well, we find this because this is a tendency of the human heart. We tend to, put, to add things to what God wants us to believe. We tend to uh, not want Christ alone. We want to be in charge. So we add these things to, uh, to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And Peter's defense is actually an, an attack to the core of what the religious leaders of the time believed. Peter says, what we did in healing this man was good, not bad, as you say. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? What we did was good. You're saying that what we did was bad, but what we did was good. And he says, What we do, we do in the name of Jesus. That is, by His power and His authority. That's why the leader said, Who gave you the right and the authority and the power to do this? He didn't come to us first to ask if He could heal the, the man in the temple. And the apostle says, Well, one greater than you gave us authority, and His name is Jesus Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel. But that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He says, you rejected him by crucifying him. God approved of him by raising him from the dead. And that's confirmed in the scriptures, Peter says. And he says that by quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 and verse 11. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, uh, through 23, The stone which the builders reject has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And that day is a reference to the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the day that we'll rejoice and be glad in it. And that's reflected every Lord's Day. It's not every day that is this day of Psalm 118. That's this day of of Acts 4. It is the Lord's Day. Today is a day in which we rejoice and are glad in it. The very person, Peter says, that the religious rulers discarded became the foundational piece in order for the church to be built. The expression chief cornerstone can mean either the stone that ties the foundation to get together or the stone that caps the construction. Either way, either meaning, the, 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 you cannot have a building with that, without that 
stone, and yet the leaders were rejecting that stone. And Peter says it is by him that we healed this man. But he continues, Peter continues, says that Jesus is not just the stone where things are built on. He is everything. Not just the beginning, not just the end, but everything. Look at verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter declares that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Notice how he repeats himself by referring to the name of Jesus. The name represents all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, but also it specifies that it is this name, no other name. This is the only name. This is the only person. This is the only work through whom people can be saved. It is true that all other religions lead to the same place. But that place is not salvation in God. Because that only happens through Jesus Christ. So if you are trusting on anything else, besides Jesus and Jesus alone, you're trusting in a failed enterprise that only is going to lead you to hell. A good test, you know, is a, is a quick test. Things from an evangelism explosion back to the days of uh, DJ Kennedy, D. James Kennedy. And if, if there were a pearly gate, which probably there isn't, and if Peter was standing in front of the pearly gate, which he won't be, and he asked you, why should, you, should he let you in? If the first thought comes to your mind is anything other than Christ, you need to figure out what you believe. Because if that's what you claim, anything other than Christ, those gates will be closed to you. That's how important what Peter is saying, is saying here is. John Calvin said, salvation is in Christ alone. And then he justifies it, tells us why. Because God has decreed that it should be so. We don't, it doesn't matter what we think about it. God has decreed that that's the case. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven from your sins, if you want to have fellowship with God through Christ forever, if you want to have the hope of the resurrection, it is through Christ alone. There is no other way. There's no other name. There's no other person. There's no other work that will accomplish that for you. Because Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. The last recorded words uh, of John Newton of Amazing Grace fame were written down by his young friend, William J. And these were it. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. The greatest decision any human ever makes concerns the nature of Christ. Now, earlier on in the Gospels, in Matthew 22, Jesus asked the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the same question is put before every one of us. What are we going to do with Christ? What are you going to do with Christ? Everything hinges on that decision with eternity in the balance on the basis of how we respond to the Bible's truth about Christ, 
God will deal with us. Who is Christ? Answering that question determines how God is going to deal with you from now through all eternity. And this is why Christ, this is why Paul says the Christian life is about Christ. For to live is what? Is Christ in Philippians 1.21. And, and brothers and sisters, in all his sufficiency, Christ is precious. Is Christ precious to you? Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. The same Peter in Acts chapter 4, but later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, he says that we are coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, listen to this, brothers and sisters, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Is Christ precious to you? This is how the passage ends. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Brothers and sisters, nothing can be added to his perfections and his completed work. In him, all our guilt is canceled and blotted and swallowed up and all our sins are sunk in his precious blood. Is Christ, in the all-sufficient Savior, precious to you? And this all-sufficiency of Christ is demonstrated in his relationships to the Christian, as described by at least six titles that the Bible gives him. Christ is the all-sufficient shepherd who delivers his sheep. We have John 10 talks about his being the good shepherd. You can't read Psalm 23 without thinking about Christ. And in the great benediction of Hebrews 13, where he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. Christ is the all-sufficient shepherd who delivers his sheep. The sinner, bound in slavery to his own sin, is delivered by the shed blood of Christ. At that point, he's freed to walk, sustained by God, along the path toward eternal rest of the promised land and in this path christians walk together never far from the good shepherd who leads and guides us in even the darkest nights in the desert we are in the desert just till yesterday uh, in the, the, the mojave desert and if the nights are off the lights are off there is dark dark and cold and you know you don't know where you're going well, life, we have, we have to, even as believers, we have dark days of the, of the soul. Even in those days, our great shepherd is leading us. Our all-sufficient shepherd is leading us. Uh, we, we, uh, the Tyndale's, trans, Tyndale's translation, which bled into the King James, who bled into the New King James, who bled into the SV and every other translation, uh, it has us walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
you know, in Psalm 23. So it, we tend to think of this as a, the psalm talking about the death of the Christian, so on. But the literal, the, the, the original language there is just the, the, the valley of darkness. And it's a valley that you walk through with our shepherd. And our all-sufficient shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, carries us even through that. The Bible also says that Christ is the all-sufficient husband who willingly weds himself to us. On the, on the one hand, he has taken full responsibility for our debts. On the other hand, his, his honor and riches and the immeasurable value of his eternal glory are now ours. To this marriage, we bring our sins. That's the only thing we bring. And Christ brings all the riches of the universe for now and forever. That, that's what our all-sufficient husband does. He now deals with us with great affection. And we are given his great love and tenderness and sympathy. Christ is also the all-sufficient prophet that speaks to us. We, it, on our own, suppress the truth. That's what all humanity does. And we become futile and foolish in our thinking. And we forget God and we worship creation instead of the Creator. And this is the state in which Christ found humanity. And as a prophet, he spoke and disclosed the invisible God. There's no way to know God apart from the all-sufficient prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. To know Christ is to know God. But if you don't know Christ, you don't know the true God of the Scriptures. And the Bible calls Christ the pure and all-sufficient priest who died a criminal's death, your death, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He is a priest, but he's a special kind of priest because not only is the one that intercedes, he's also the offering. He intercedes based on his own blood. He comes before a holy God on our behalf on the basis of his own blood. See that in Hebrews chapter 10. And because of that, there is one and only one ultimate and final mediator who acts between God and man, who brings God and man together, and that is Jesus Christ, the God-man. Christ is the Lamb who absorbed the full wrath of God, and because of that, He is the eternal focal point of all our worship. Christ is also the all-sufficient King who reigns over the world. He fought, he bled, he died, but in dying he conquered. He destroyed death and disarmed it of its sting, and through the cross the king won. As Christ is hanging crucified, Satan is giving a good laugh. Think, I won. And yet it is through the cross that Christ attained victory. It is the throne that the Son of God set for our sins. Christ is the king over the whole universe, bringing all things under his control. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, kings and politicians may be ignorant of his reign, but their ignorance makes his dominion no less real. Christ is the king in charge of all the political elections and processes. The collapse of kingdoms and the collapse of nations and the commotion of revolutions 
all unfold according to the wisely determined plan that has as its final cause the kingdom of God in Christ. We can get very depressed with how things go, no matter what side of the aisle you might be. And when that happens, it might be an indication that we're putting our trust in the government of men instead of the government of the King of Kings, who is ruling everything for His glory. And that the, you know what bad government should do for us as Christians? It should cause us to long for the coming of Jesus Christ, the perfect King, who is always going to minister, and who is always ministering even now for our good. And lastly, Christ is the all-sufficient friend who protects us. He condescends to seek sinners who are poor and puny, That's us. No weakness in his friends withholds Christ's free and endless love. Nothing in us, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, causes him to love us any less or any differently. No weakness, no idiosyncrasy, no sin causes him to love us any less. And there's no illustration that shows this more clearly than in Christ's free willingness to ransom his life for his friends. Isn't that what he said in the Upper Room Discourse? No greater love has this than to lay your life for your friends. Christ is a friend who finds the sinner wandering in a godless desert, tripping toward eternal death. That's what we were doing. And yet he found us there, and Christ steps in not only to save him, but also to give him eternal joy and comfort. No, true friendship in all its dimensions. Now, we are forgetful and faithless and disloyal. But our neglect and distrust and disobedience does not diminish his love for us. Paul tells Timothy that even when we are faithful, God, we are unfaithful. God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is the Christ that our brother reformers discovered anew in the 16th century. And that's the Christ that we need to keep on discovering and rediscovering and re-rediscovering throughout our lives. Now, to, to speak of the all-sufficiency of Christ is inevitably to see weaknesses in, the present, in, in our present age and to foresee hopes in the future. If we are in love with Christ, if we see Him as the all-sufficient Savior, we're going to see all kinds of hopelessness and weaknesses in this age. Because this is the age of hopelessness and weakness. But also, if we are firmly embracing and clinging to the all-sufficient Christ and to Christ alone, this faith stimulates our lives with the anticipation of the presence and the glory of Christ. And if Christ is our all-sufficient Savior, we'll be able to pray with John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And the things of this life will, will, as the hymn says, grow strangely dim in the glory of the life to to come. So we keep on looking to Christ and Him alone, Shedding anything that we might be tempted to add to Him, because after all, to live is Christ, but not any Christ. 
to live is the all-sufficient Christ in our lives. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the Christ that your word reveals to us. Enable us to keep our eyes upon him. We pray that indeed to live will be Christ, the all-sufficient Christ revealed in your word. We pray that we would shed any idea that we can add anything to him, but come completely naked before you, knowing that he closes us with all righteousness. Father, we, 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 we simply cling to your cross, not your cross, Father, but the cross of your Son. We cling to Christ. We cling to what he's done for us. We believe and we pray that you help us in our unbelief in the times where we attempt to contribute to our own salvation. No, because we know that there's nothing we can do. And yet, that's how we want us to come to you. So that's how we come to you now. Open our eyes to see Christ even more clearly as we live for him. In whose name we pray. Amen.